Hey lovelies, before we get started, I wanted to remind you that a lovely sale is still going strong. Use code LOVELYPPE at impactfashionnyc.com for 40% off my entire line of size-inclusive modest fashion, and I'll donate 19% of your purchase to help get PPE to our frontline healthcare workers. Some styles are already sold out, but there are still options for every size. I also want to let you know that my guest today, Dr. Bacheva Lerner-Maslow, is a reproductive endocrinologist, otherwise known as a fertility specialist. I'm really proud of this conversation, and I think that we cover a lot of super important topics. At the same time, I want to let you know that portions of our discussion could cause young children to ask questions and start conversations you may not want to have right now. On the other hand, if you have teenage daughters, I strongly recommend they listen to this episode. It is full of information that they may eventually need. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Itzkowitz, and on today's show, I talk with a reproductive endocrinologist about how her husband's cancer diagnosis led her to the specialty she loves so much. We discuss the misconceptions that surround her patients, how sex ed in the U.S. can actually make couples dealing with infertility feel worse, and I get a brief science lesson. Dr. Bacheva Lerner-Maslow occupies an unusual Venn diagram. She's a woman in medicine in a highly specialized field with a family of her own at the very top of her game. I wanted to have her on to learn about how she got there, and in the end, I learned so much that I'm a bit embarrassed I did not know before. Dr. Maslow has a unique ability to take complex concepts and give them over in digestible nuggets, a skill that is very useful when talking about something as important as our health. I was definitely one of those kids who was super independent. Like I never wanted anyone to help me do anything. I just wanted to do everything myself. Um, and, you know, love to explore and read and learn and definitely was spent many years sort of curled up on the couch reading Nancy Drew books. For I love Nancy Drew. <laughs> love Nancy Drew. Um, yeah. But yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Listen, it, it's funny because almost all of the people I've interviewed have said some version of that, of like really shy, kind of introverted and also just like independent and doing their own thing. Like it's every, it's funny. Cause I think that everyone, when you're little thinks that that's awkward, but we are all that, like we're yeah. all, we're all stressing about that all the time. Um, it's funny. I think when I was young, it was like not cool to be smart. Um, and I always felt like I had to kind of hide the like bookish smartiness a little bit. Um, like I remember, in middle school, like somebody asking me to give an address to the like parent body at some dinner function. And I was like, I don't do that. Um, and now I like kick myself, but I see like in my, you know, I've seen over the years and in my kids, like that's not really the culture anymore, which is kind of cool that like, yeah, it's like cool to be, you know, bookie and smart. Yeah, nerds nerds have a much stuff. better rap right now. Yeah. Like it's nerd is a nerd is a cool thing. And I'm, and cool I'm in, yeah. And I'm in the same boat as you. And I'm like, why I, hello, I was the best nerd. Why, why did I miss that boat of having that be a cool thing? But yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what you do now? Sure. So I'm a reproductive endocrinologist, uh, which in layman's terms means I'm a fertility specialist. 
in my like super specialty is I do a lot of fertility preservation or egg freezing. So I work at a practice called Extend Fertility. It's in Midtown Manhattan. Um, it was the first practice in the United States that was set up um, primarily focused on women who were interested in proactively freezing their eggs. Since then, we've expanded. So I, I actually do see sort of the full suite of infertility treatment um, and infertility patients. Um, but I still, a lot of my time and focus and passion is in that group of, of for women who are um, uh, seeking fertility preservation. So that's kind of my primary job. Um, I also do kind of on the side <laughs> a bunch of other things in the Jewish community related to uh, reproduction and women's health. Um, I teach and lecture a lot and I write and um, I don't know, a whole smattering of, of things. All, those, all, all the things. Um, I was just talking about this with, um, with Esty Wolby um, and she was saying, you know, I, I asked her, I was like, so what do you do? And she's like, there's no too many things. We're all, we all have 15 gigs right now. There's no, yeah, exactly. just like, I don't, there's just one thing. <laughs> right. I, I am one thing. Um, how is a reproductive endocrinologist different from an OB? Let's say. So it's a, sub, it's a, it's a subspecialty of OBGYN. So to get here, I did four years of medical school. Actually, I did five years of medical school. Sometimes I joke that I got left back, but <laughs> I did an extra year of research. Um, and then I did a four-year OBGYN residency and was board certified in OBGYN. So in theory, I could at that point go out and practice um, general obstetrics and gynecology, but I then decided to move on to do a subspecialty in reproductive endocrinology. So it's another three years of subspecialty and then another round of board certification. Wow. So yeah, lots of school. Okay. I get it. Do you, yeah. did you always know that you wanted to go into, um, in, into this field that, that you always wanted to be involved in the fertility space? I don't always, I definitely was one of those kids who was like, I want to be a doctor when I grow up at least probably at least since seventh grade, but maybe earlier than that. Um, like my father was a physician. He used to take me on rounds with him when he was, when I was little. Um, That's like adorable. On mornings, I have like early memories of going with him to the hospital. Um, but definitely since like probably sixth, seventh grade, I knew I wanted to be a doctor and kind of always knew that. Um, and I went to an all girls, pretty right wing yeshiva high school that was not particularly exciting. <laughs> about that idea uh, but it was just like it was not a question like that was what was gonna happen um, I and so I kind of always knew that going into medical school I felt like of course I want to do women's health it just makes sense to me you know there really weren't a lot or any orthodox very few orthodox female um, OBGYNs or women's health specialists uh, and I felt like that was a huge void in the, in the community, in the medical field. So that's sort of where I wanted to be. Um, and then we had in the middle of my first year, maybe towards in the summer after my first year of medical school, I did this elective, this summertime elective where I spent a few weeks kind of shadowing OBGYNs and working on the lab, like following people on labor delivery and all that. And I was like, man, this is crazy. I don't want to do this. You know, the lifestyle was crazy. They, many of them seemed so miserable. And I was just kind of like, okay, uh, this is not what I want to do. They seemed like this is going to be terrible. So I spent a lot of my medical school trying to think of other things that I would want to do and trying everything else. Um, and ultimately kind of came back to the fact that there was really nothing else that I loved and felt passionate about. 
Um, and then in the midst of all of this, this is a long-winded answer to your question. But, no, I'm fascinated. Uh, Please keep going. So in the midst of all of this in my medical career, in my medical school, so my husband was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma um, very, like shortly after I started medical school. Um, and that kind of, that as a result of that process sort of opened up my, you know, me personally into to meeting some of the reproductive endocrinologists that worked at my school or worked in our medical system. And I met them personally as a result of this sort of discussion about chemo and radiation and all this for my husband um, and really kind of fell in love with the field and looked at these, there were, there was one woman and several men who were in the field, who were in this practice and just sort of like, these are my people. Like, this is my, this is totally my calling. I love the field. It's so fascinating. It's heavily technical and scientific, but also just like innately human right. and being able to just help and completely change the trajectory of people's lives. Um, so I was immediately drawn to it. And so that, you know, basically that kind of colored the background of my medical school career. And by the time I grad was getting close to sort of finalizing a specialty, I was just like, there's just nothing else that's going to make this worth it. Right. Um, and my husband actually, when, when I was, kind of finalizing, concretizing that decision, I said, you know, this is, you know, OBGYN is like the hardest residency. It's the most time consuming. It's like really very challenging. Are you sure we're okay with this? And he's just like, we're not doing this to kind of do it halfway. If you're going to do it, let's do it right. Like, let's do what you really love to do. And so that's, that's kind of the best kind of outlook. If you don't mind so, my asking, is your husband okay now? Oh, thank God. Yes. We actually just, we just celebrated 15 years. Wow. Congra congratulations. That's, it was a little bit of a muted celebration given everything that's going on. Um, right. Usually we go out to a fancy dinner and instead we had Dunkin' Donuts delivered by Grubhub. You know what? <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts are like one of the everyday things that I think is getting everyone through quarantine. I should say I'm not exactly, <laughs> by, hopefully by the time this airs, maybe quarantine will be over, but we are recording this um, in the midst of, of Corona quarantine. And I am happy that you got your Dunkin' because that's, yeah. that's, I want so to got. Overpriced, overpriced delivery donuts uh, to celebrate. But yes, so thank God he's doing fine. I'm, um, I'm really glad to hear that. So yeah. what the, you mentioned that what you focus on is mainly um, what you refer to as fertility preservation or more commonly referred to as egg freezing. So in is there something... Is there like a common denominator among the women who you work with that are they just, you know, I hate to say this, but is it like the biological talk is clock is ticking and, and, you know, if you ever want to do this, then maybe you should do something about it. Is it, does it fall into that kind of area mostly or are there yes, other things planned? Such a great question. So there's really a lot of bias. Uh, around this. I think, I think it's finally changed, but there's still this kind of notion of, you know, the woman who freezes her eggs is the kind of type A career woman who doesn't really want children or doesn't want them now and wants to focus on her career. And so she's freezing her eggs. That's like a really tiny percentage of the women that I see. I think most of the women that I see are women who like, are just like you and me. I mean, any of us could have easily been just like these women. You know, they're lovely, thoughtful, and desperately desire to have a family one day, but just haven't met the right person. You know, and easily could be any one of the people that we meet in the street who were lucky enough to find our partners earlier in life. And these are women who, who aren't in those circumstances. And so I find it like, it's, that's the majority, you know, and the data supports that. There have been other studies that looked at egg freezing that say about 80% of the women who come are women 
who otherwise would be very happy to be, fam you know, starting their families, but haven't found a partner and don't want to feel like pressured to um, settle with somebody who they otherwise wouldn't have. Well, yeah, it's um, kind of, it makes sense to me that you shouldn't settle aside from the fact that, I mean, listen, I don't, I don't have kids, but I am married and that's a big decision. And you don't want to, I, I can only imagine how difficult it is to feel like you're forced into that decision because you want to get to, you know, to, to kind of skip step A so that you can get to step C seems, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a rough place to be in. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I think there are definitely certainly women in prior generations who felt like, you know, kind of, I don't know what I say, you know, they felt pressure. There's a lot of pressure. Of There's a lot of pressure to find the right person, a lot of pressure to, to start a family. You know, some of that pressure is societal, some of it's cultural, some of it's innately biological. Um, and so you feel that pressure and that, that certainly can push people to, to make decisions or view the, their relationships in ways they may not otherwise. Um, and so I feel extraordinarily privileged to be able to have this sort of tiny moment in these women's lives um, to give them this kind of opportunity to, to talk about their fertility in, an, in a sort of open, non-judgmental place, right? The vast, you know, I kind of recognize when women come to see me for fertility preservation, this was not plan A, right? No, there's very few women who are like, and I'm going to freeze my eggs at 35. You know, it's, right. it's like, if I'm not married, I'm going to freeze my eggs at 35. If I don't, if it's if, and then then, you know, it's right. always plan B or C or D. And so it really comes from a place of vulnerability and kind of recognizing that the woman who's sitting in front of me is, is in a vulnerable place. And to be able to, to be there with her is, is something that I feel very privileged to do. Um, and through my work, I get to really support. And like I said, well, even though it's not the baby making isn't happening in, in the present time, right. it does have the opportunity to really alter the trajectory of people's lives. Right. Um, is there, is there a misconception that you find that people have about your work in general, um, as it relates specifically to the egg freezing, but also just in general about what it is uh, that you do as a reproductive endocrinologist? Well, certainly there's a lot of misconceptions about egg freezing. I think a lot of people assume that egg freezing is kind of this big business and these like men telling women to be afraid and, you know, have babies and they're never gonna be able to have babies and a lot of fear and shame and all that. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about that. Uh, to be honest, I, there are, unfortunately, there are bad characters in every field and maybe there are people who do portray it that way, but it's certainly not my or my practice's objective in any way. Um, and in terms of my, you know, when I see my infertility patients, you know, there's also, there's a lot of shame around that too and a lot of hesitation. Um, and that's a very special relationship that I develop with my patients also. And I think there are, there are definitely um, this notion that fertility doctors, you know, it, I think because it's unfortunately so expensive and not covered by insurance that it's kind of this whole money business thing that it really for, for me and for most of my colleagues it's not like um and but you know even for my infertility you know for my infertility patients again it's like it's such a special relationship that I and a, a place that I get to be in their lives um that I really it's truly a privilege to right. be led in somebody's life in that way when um when I can when you're working with someone who's who's dealing with infertility, it's such a different dynamic from 
um, someone who's working to preserve their their fertility because you know if, I I would imagine and please correct me if I'm wrong because I'm speculating here but if I'm making the decision to freeze my eggs that means okay this isn't working right now for whatever reason but it'll work in the future and let me just have all my options open and this is my backup plan you know this is my insurance policy and if you're at the point where you're seeking care for infertility for not being able to get pregnant or sustain a pregnancy or whatever then you're you're already like if if egg freezing is plan c then going to see an infertility specialist i would imagine is plan like w like all the (laughs) way all the way out so what are what are the ways that that you're able aside from obviously just you know the medical and helping people get the care that they need um what are some ways that you're able to support um to support your patients at whatever stage they're at yeah i mean there was a point very briefly at some point in my life where I thought about being a teacher and then realized like I would never like being a teacher, but there's a part of me that's sort of innately an educator. And I think, you know, it isn't true of every medical field, but certainly the one I'm in, there's so much that's basically education. And, um, and it's really like the knowledge is the power, meaning there's so much we don't know we grow up not knowing or understanding about what is really essentially a very basic biologic function that for many women and couples happens without us thinking about it, right? We don't have to think about, you know, ovulating. It happens automatically. Um, it's not voluntary. Right. Uh, but there's so much that as, you know, we've, we've grown up just not knowing. Um, and so, on the one hand, it was particularly when I talk to women who are interested in freezing their eggs, so much of it is about education, really understanding, you know, what are the limitations of fertility, what, you know, what's natural, what's normal, what are, what's to be expected. I think there are lots of people, even, you know, not necessarily single women who want to freeze their eggs, I think lots of people grow up and are adults who think that like, you, you know, you get pregnant on the first try. Um, and from, you know, don't really understand that, that for many, many, many couples, most actually, that's not true. Um, and so, so much of it is education. Now, when I, and when I speak to couples who are already experiencing infertility, they've sort of been forced into education by, by necessity, meaning they've already educated themselves to some degree, because by the time they've seen me, they've already been trying for a year, let's say, right? And in our, in our world, there's so much that's out there in terms of, you know, you can Google anything right. and get so much information. So when I, when I speak to them, it's, you know, speaking to a couple who's experiencing infertility, it's really getting a sense of where are we in terms of medically getting an idea of, of where we might want to go treatment wise and diagnostically, but also sort of informationally and emotionally, what pieces of knowledge does, does this couple need in order to really be able to move forward in a whole way. I mean, they have to, you have to, whether or not, look, thank God, fertility treatments have become way more successful than they've ever been. So the majority, thankfully, really the vast majority of my patients will ultimately leave my practice with a baby. I think, and I, and I feel very grateful for that, but there's going to be some people who don't, there's going to be some people for whom it takes much longer than others it's a process and it's a journey that is different and sometimes unpredictable. And you really have to be whole with that process, right? You have to feel like you know what's going on, understand, even if we can't always know why something happened, kind of understand it in its totality. Um, and that, that falls on me as an educator to really in, you know, 
partner with the couple, a partner with a woman who's doing egg freezing. It's sort of a similar pathway. It's just a different starting point and a different modality. Right. What you, you know, you mentioned this education whole aspect and it's funny because I was talking about this with, um, uh, with Rachel Tuckman, who was uh, one of my sure. first first guests. Um, she's fabulous. And um, we were talking about the misinformation that can circulate on social media and on a very shallow level. I see people give out awful fashion advice all the time. And I'm like, that's <laughs> just... Now, the consequences of bad fashion advice are a bad outfit. And I'm okay with that. Like, if you're going to go out in the world like that, that's fine. Um, but we were talking in, um, in her field specifically as it relates to psychology, you know, the consequences of bad mental health advice advice can be very dire and I can only imagine in much in the same way that the consequences of bad medical advice or bad fertility advice um, can also be pretty severe Um, so what's something that that we should all know about taking care of our health what's something that any you know any woman listening to this should just know x y and z I wish there was (laughs) I'll give you I'll give you a couple minutes go through a few (laughs) I mean, part of the challenge and part of why we find ourselves in this predicament so many times is that it's not easy to digest it into sound bites. Like fertility and reproduction is very nuanced. And for many years, there was this notion of, you know, a very paternalistic notion that's like, it's just too complicated for women to understand. Like, don't, you know, sort of like, don't worry your pretty little head over it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and that notion, thankfully, I think is being is is sort of dispelling. But we there is. Do you a, think that's because there are more um, that there are more women going into the field? I, I definitely think that has something to do with it. Yeah. I mean, still, at, if you look in my, it's interesting. So in OBGYN, the shift from male to female dominance happened like probably twenty years ago. It, you sort of got to the point where there were more women in the field than men. Mm-hmm. But in the subspecialties especially the ones like mine that are very intense and there aren't a lot of spots and, you know, that shift hasn't took much, much, much longer. Um, and even, even though let's say when I was a resident, you know, 10% of the residents were men in my fellowship, which was the specialty, it was like 50%. Wow. So it like shifts. Right. Um, more men go into subspecialties and more women don't for whatever reason we could kind of dive into why that may be, but, um, why do you think that is at the, I mean, I think it's part of it is it's, it's just so much more. It's, you know, after four years of a very intense residency to do three more years, it's a lifestyle thing. It's a lifestyle. I mean, I think it's just hard. Um, it takes a lot of commitment and I think it's, it's, it's a challenge and, for better or worse, that also sort of coincides with sort of peak baby reproductive years. And many women are just like, I want to, you know, start to have, get to my real job and have a family and do those things. Um, and the men right. don't feel that as much pressure to do that. Um, and, but at the top levels of my fields, even though now most of the reproductive endocrinologists are female, I mean, like it's more than 50%, the high level leaders of the field are still for the, you know, predominantly male. Um, so yes, I think part of that is, is, has been around that and also just around female education in general. I mean, I'm not talking about, we're talking about like not, you know, elementary school and high school biology sometimes here, you know, that the notion of, you know, certainly in the United States, so much of, of sex education is around pregnancy prevention that people go into their women and men go into their early adulthood, assuming that 
pregnancy must happen so easily if you have to do all these things to prevent it. Which, by the way, makes it all the more painful for couples who experience infertility. So like, all I heard all my life was about, you know, how easy it would be to get pregnant if I made a mistake. And now, like, here I am tr desperately trying. Um, so I think they're really, the shift has to go back to just being realistic and, and talking about the facts. So, so the facts are that on any given month, right, there's one egg that gets released to be available for pregnancy. Um, and the chances of that egg turning into a, a baby have to do with whether or not there's sperm available at the precise time that the egg is being released. And even if there is sperm available at the precise time they're being released, there's so many other variables that have to go into play. So even in peak fertility time, so let's say in someone who's in their mid-20s, right, which is largely thought to be sort of our peak fertility, the chances of conception on any given month is somewhere between 25 and 30%. So that means that one out of every four or one out of every three at the best are gonna conceive couples who are trying, right? And that's in their you know early to mid 20s. When you start talking about late 20s to early 30s, it's more like one in five couples. People are shocked to hear that when you say yeah. you, have, you have five couples trying to conceive on any given month, only one out of those five statistically is gonna conceive. And that's normal. That's not that there's something wrong with anybody. That's normal. Um, and so just reaffirming what's actually expected and biologically normal that like it can take three to six months for even a young couple to conceive and that doesn't really necessarily mean that there's something wrong. So that's on the one hand. Then there's also kind of the opposite extreme of couples, let's say, who where there's obviously a problem. And, you know, so somebody- What's an example of an obvious problem? Let's say a, a woman who has irregular cycles, right? Or no cycles, right? So right. I, this happens to me, I would say, maybe not once a month, but once, you know, certainly several times a year, I'll get a couple who comes to me, like we've been trying for a year. And I say, okay, so when was your last period? And she's like, you know, five months ago. They're like, all right, then you haven't been trying for a year. I know 12 months has elapsed since you attempt, you know, started trying, right. but if you haven't had, you haven't had 12 opportunities to get pregnant, you maybe had one or two. Science so, question. Yeah. Are you, is it possible to ovulate without getting a period? Generally not. So generally, so just to, to explain, to briefly explain the way the menstrual cycle works, which please I do. I have like an insane nerdiness about the menstrual cycle. I just can I can tell that by reading your posts, by the way, because I, <laughs> I also I am a science nerd. I love like science was always my favorite subject. I'm still like I'm always watching like engineering shows and things. I'm I I love it and I love reading your stuff because as I'm reading it, I'm like Pacheva loves this just as much as I do. Like this is amazing. <laughs> so I love talking about the menstrual cycle. Okay, so let's take a pause and I can talk. Like let me give you kind of my brief. Um, Please brief summary of how the menstrual cycle works. So essentially what happens is that at any given month, there's going to be a group of eggs that comes to the surface of the ovary that are sort of available to ovulate. The vast majority of what happens in the menstrual cycle is a communication between the brain and the ovary. The uterus, which is ultimately what we think about most when we think about the menstrual cycle, because that's what sheds and bleeds at the end of it all, is actually like a sort of a passive follower of all of this. Like I sometimes refer to it as like the foot soldier. The uterus is sort of dumb. It doesn't do anything on its own. It only does in response to this communication between the brain and the ovary. 
So essentially at the beginning of each menstrual cycle, which is really truthfully the end of the previous menstrual cycle, the brain will send a message to the ovary that will essentially grow one of these eggs and dedicate it to that cycle. They grow in this bubble or cyst that's called a follicle. The follicle will develop. It takes about 10 to, 10 to 13 days or so for the follicle to fully develop. As the follicle develops, it produces estrogen, which is what gives people sort of symptoms that they start to feel as they get closer to ovulation. The estrogen tells the brain that it doesn't need to keep sending that message to keep growing the follicle. And then when the estrogen gets to a certain level, the brain, that triggers what's called the LH surge, uh, which is what tells the, the brain tells the ovary to release the egg for ovulation. And that happens around the mid-cycle. So typically that happens around day 14 in a typical perfect quote-unquote 28-day cycle, but it could happen a little later. Sometimes it happens a little earlier, whatever it may be. During that first, we'll call it two weeks because in a perfect 28-day cycle, it's like the first 14 days, but again, it could be 16 days, could be longer, could be shorter. That estrogen that's developed by, that's secreted by the ovary is what builds the lining of the uterus in preparation for a potential pregnancy. Then at ovulation, the egg gets released. If there is sperm there and the egg is fertilized and the egg makes it to the uterus and implants, then the, egg, the embryo will start to uh, produce pregnancy hormone or HCG. Um, the ovary, once it releases the, uh, the egg for ovulation, switches from producing estrogen to producing progesterone. It will produce enough progesterone to support the lining of the uterus through this point of implantation. And when implantation happens, if there is HCG, it will, that will trigger more progesterone to be produced. If the egg is released and no sperm is there or it doesn't work for whatever reason, then no new HCG comes and there's no new progesterone production. And so the progesterone levels fall and then the lining is no longer supported and it will shed. And that's so your that, period. And that's, that's your period. Okay. Typically what will happen is that the lining will shed about so you'll get a period usually 14 days after ovulation so that process because it's really finite how much progesterone the ovary can produce without a, a pregnancy um and so in p women who have long cycles let's say a 32-day cycle is still within normal range but someone who has a 32-day cycle will typically ovulate 14 days before their period so they're ovulating a little later they're not ovulating on day 14 they may be ovulating later so, so they'll they'll ovulate when you say like 14 days before their period, regardless of whether or not, if it's a 28 day cycle, then it, that 14 days is the midpoint. But if it's a 32 day cycle, then that 14 day point is a little bit after the midpoint. Correct. Got it. And if it's a 25 day cycle, that 14 days is going to actually be earlier than the midpoint. Right. So if you're not, if you're not getting your period, then it means that you didn't ovulate because all these hormone things didn't typically, happen. Typically there are some real extreme cases in which, that may, you know, you may be ovulating and not getting period. There are sometimes where people are bleeding and not ovulating. Um, usually that's not regular, meaning they're not getting, they're not having bleeding every 28 days on the dot and not ovulating. Usually if they're having regular cycles that are predictable to some degree, that usually means they're ovulating. So when women go long stretches of time without a period, that usually almost always means they're not ovulating. And so to me, that's a big red flag. Like if you're trying to conceive, you want to have a baby, but you're not having regular periods, like you need to speak to your doctor. You don't necessarily need to go to a fertility specialist. You can start with an OBGYN, but 
that's, I think, a misconception that's very, that's very prevalent that people don't realize. They're like, oh, we need to try for a year before we ask for help. Um, the truth is, in those kinds of circumstances, that, that may not be the case. Cool. Um, so, and there are others, but that's probably the most common right. that I see. Uh, but yeah, and so even just that, the notion of, of, of kind of understanding the menstrual cycle, understanding when ovulation happens, there's just a lot that women don't know. So for example, I sometimes consult um, for a company that run, that has, they make this um, wearable device that you sleep with and it measures various biometric um, measurements. So like temperature and- Like a Fitbit kind of thing? What's that? Like a Fitbit similar to it's that? It's kind of like a Fitbit. Okay. Um, they call it a fertility bracelet, but it's not really a bracelet. It's more like a Fitbit. Okay. Um, and so it measures all these things, heart rate, breathing rate, skin perfusion has like really, really fascinating data. Um, and a lot of what they've learned from their data, they, they're very big in Europe. So they have like 800,000 users in wow. Europe. Um, and it's so interesting how many times what's needed is just like a shift in understanding when ovulation is happening in order for women to, you know, for couples to conceive. Sometimes it's literally just as simple as like, don't have sex on Monday, have it on Wednesday. Yes. Yes. Wow. That's fascinating. Um, And I see that in my practice too. Although by the time it gets to my practice, like if you're coming to see me in the office, it's, it's much less likely that you've just been like consistently missing the right time to have intercourse month after month after month. Right. Um, but it does sometimes happen. Um, and, and some of that has to do with mis, you know, people who have, who have misconceptions about how often they should be having intercourse or let's say somebody who has a really, has a really late cycle. Somebody who has a 35 day cycle is going to ovulate essentially a week later than somebody who has a 28 day cycle. Right. So I've had couples who come to see me who are having intercourse every single day from day 12 to day 18, and then they're not having intercourse again because they were told to have intercourse every single day in the, you know, around day 14. And they're completely missing their ovulation because her ovulation is happening on day 21. Right. Yeah. So it's just like, it's, it's crazy how it's just this very basic understanding of how the cycle works and what are the things you can do can really can help, can you know, help to figure out, you know, without needing intense medical intervention, just scheduling better. Yeah. That is I mean, my mind. Some is of what I, some of what I do professionally is this too. So I, I work on the board, I'm on the board of, um, or I'm on the, I'm the medical director for the Nishma Yoetz at Halakha program, which is a program that trains um, female scholars in the Orthodox community to help answer questions um, related to Jewish law and reproduction or women's health and the mikvah and all. And, um, and so I teach them their medical, the medical lectures and I develop the medical curriculum. And part of what I do is really hammer home some of these pieces and train them as educators in that way, because sometimes that they're the, they're getting questions that really relate to this. Meaning a couple doesn't necessarily need to go to a fertility specialist or their doctor. Sometimes they're calling their you know, their uh, sort of rabbinic advisor or their- Right, we should, we should say for advisor. someone, 
I just want to jump in for someone who might not be familiar. There are some really complex uh, laws that are generally referred to as tarat um, mishpacha or family purity, um, and that is that an Orthodox Jewish couple um, will not um, have sex or be together for the week that, that the woman has her period, and also for the week after. Um, and ending that that process is is super technical and has a lot to do with when exactly a period would occur. So in a lot of ways, Orthodox Jewish women track their periods, particularly married women, track their periods really closely um, because it has this overarching effect on how they live their lives, um, which means that we're kind of more, we, we are in a lot of ways, it's weird because I don't think that in the general Orthodox system we get sex ed at all. So in a lot of ways we're operating in the dark um, because unless you are someone who is going to pursue that independently or if you have um, access to people who are willing to talk to that talk about that with you openly like my mom was always super open with me so I knew what was going on and then I have plenty of friends who when they got their first period thought they were dying because they were just bleeding and they didn't know where it was coming from and and I'm dying um and I actually had a friend in in like sixth grade tell me that she's she like came back from the bathroom she's like Riffy I'm, I'm not coming to school tomorrow I'm gonna be dead and I was and I was like what are you talking about and I did and I was the one who had to tell her as a kid mind you Aww. no you're not dying this is a totally normal thing um so what that means is that because we, because it's, it's weird, because when you have, you know, insular communities, then you, this kind of information is not generally shared easily, um, just because, and I think also people just get awkward about it. Like they just get yeah. squirmy and, and, and that's good in a way, I guess. Um, but in a lot of ways, because we track our periods so closely, because it affects a lot of how we live our lives, um, we're also a lot more in tune to this. So it, it goes yeah. back and forth. Uh, yeah and I mean it, there's there's definitely pluses you know different pluses and minuses to it but what that means is there may be someone who's in these circumstances where they're you know they may be completely missing their ovulation because they're trying to get pregnant and the first person they end up talking to is not a doctor they're talking to you know an advisor or they're talking to a friend or they're talking so so much of what I do is ends up like I said education so I you know I just the Many of my lectures, and sometimes my lectures are very super high and technical because people find that fascinating. Like I would give a lecture on, you know, the impacts of, of like Jewish law and eth Jewish medical ethics on gender selection. You know, something super technical and, and right. esoteric, but people, you know, it's obviously really fascinating. I want, I want to hear that. <laughs> I'm very. <laughs> you can, when this is all over, you can hire me to go. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> We're going to make a group. <laughs> um, but then sometimes I do, you know, I'll give, I'll give, um, you know, I give lectures to um, like a much broader, like rab rabbinical conference or uh, Rebbitzin, you know, like wives of rabbis conference or something like that, where those are people, you know, those are advisors that, that women may come to speak to. Or couples may come speak to who don't necessarily have the, the medical or biologic background. They may sometimes be kind of the first responders in this way. Um, in in and then you know outside of the the kind of orthodox community, those first response you know the first response may actually be a doctor or a friend or the internet often, um, which is also sometimes why I do a lot of work on Instagram because that that does allow me to you know allows you to put out some information that people can hopefully find. And and maybe they never need to come see me as a as a patient, right? To 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 educate themselves in that way. Yeah. What is something I want to shift gears a little bit? Um, what is something that that you would say to someone listening to this who who is struggling with infertility in any way? Um, and and what what would be like your your message to them? So 
I really try to, if not directly, at least indirectly, kind of help my patients feel like coming to see me is the first step towards this like new life of theirs, right? They've, they've done what they could without this help. And now they're gonna come and, and for the most part, this is, I'm gonna help them, right? Like I said, thank God, the vast majority of my patients one way or another are gonna leave my practice with a baby. Um, and so it's part of saying, you know, it's part of kind of helping people transition from this sort of very private, right? Very private, very um, quiet endeavor that they've been attempting, very painful, sometimes shameful, stressful process to a much more collaborative um, process. And that's difficult for people, right? I'm going to let this doctor into what is should be this very private, intimate um, affair between me and my husband. And that's hard for people. It's hard for men. It's hard for women. It's hard for couples together. Um, but I really like to help my patients realize that I'm, like, I'm a partner in what's happening and that this was the perfect first step. Meaning if they've been trying for whatever it may be, 12 months, 15 months. I mean, the reason we say 12 months is because statistically, 80% of couples will conceive in that in the first 12 months. Um, and the truth is that like 60, I forgot the exact numbers, something like 60% of couples or 65% of couples will conceive in the first six months. So most people are gonna concert, can, most couples will conceive in the first six months. Then there's still a group that will, won't conceive after six months, but will conceive between six and 12 months. After 12 months, the conception rate doesn't go to zero. It, but it drops significantly. So let's say we were talking about, you know, someone in their early 30s, it's like 20 to, 20, you know, 20% per month. After 12 months, it's like 5% per month. And so what I really try to help people realize is that they're not trading away, like, oh, we should keep trying more. Like we're, we're, we're giving up on this chance of not needing a doctor. It's like they got to a point where I can help you. I can get your rates back from 5% to 25%, 30%, 80%, depending on what treatment we end up doing. So it's really like part of it is, is, is almost a grieving process of grieving this reproduction, family building that you envisioned, but it's also recognizing, okay, I'm actually taking the first really proactive, helpful step to kind of put me in a new place. That's um, such a great way of looking at it. Yeah, it's a, it's a different... It's, it's not the last step. It's the first step of, of moving forward. This has been amazing and mind-blowing and, and all of that. And I'm <laughs> so glad that we got this, ch this chance to, to chat. If somebody wants to learn um, more about you or from you, Bacheva, where can they go? Um, so if they, probably in my Instagram is, is the best place to kind of learn more about me and what I do and what I like to talk about. Um, my handle is at BL Maslow MD. Um, they can also, if you're interested in learning more about my practice, I mean, my practice is Extend Fertility. We have a website, it's extendfertility.com. Um, those are probably the two best ways to, to find more about me. Fabulous. Last question that I want to ask you is what I ask everyone who comes on the show, and that is to you, Dr. Bacheva Maslow, and how you move through the world and in your work and in your personal life, what does it mean to you to make an impact? So for me, it's kind of weaving in and out of people's lives in a way that, 
that changes the direction, meaning having uh, an impact in their lives that if I hadn't been there at that moment to have made that connection or done something, um, that their lives may be completely different. Um, sometimes that's big, sometimes it's small, but I, I like to feel like, especially in my professional work, but sometimes even in my personal life, um, that my role is sort of kind of falling, coming into people's lives at just the right time and really helping them through a particular moment. Uh, and then sometimes leaving. <laughs> that is fabulous. Thank you so much for coming on today, Bacheva. Thank you I really so much appreciate for having it. me. This was really wonderful. Thanks for listening. You can find all of Bacheva's links in the show notes. I've also linked Itty Bitty Impact, a totally free paper doll set that's a great quarantine activity. Reminder that there's a 40% off sale happening right now that helps our healthcare workers get the PPE they need. And while supplies last, every purchase comes with a free Carmella Cosmetics gift box. That link is also in the show notes. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. To hear more episodes, subscribe or head over to impactfashionnyc.com slash blogs slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help more people hear it, leave a review or a quick rating. They really make my day. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.